And so when I think about what literature does in the world, I am not ashamed for it to be a call to the Almighty at all um, and to say, come, Lord Jesus. But in the same way that the sort of community of the love of the Trinity works as call and response. So um, in the body, etc. right? Whoever wants to read this and, you know, sort of say, oh, there's your apocalyptic vision. Well, yeah, make the grass live, right? Make, the, make these babies live, make these, you know, don't let it happen this way anymore, right? Uh, so if I, if I can call for that or if I can try somehow uh, in the domains where I'm working, uh, et cetera, to be part of that kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, uh, yeah, I'm in. Tiffany Eberly Kreiner is Associate Professor of English at Wheaton College in Illinois. The author of the scholarly book, The Future of the Word and Eschatology of Reading, as well as of a number of articles and chapters in academic venues. Kreiner is more recently the author of the memoir In Thought, Word, and Seed, Reckonings from a Midwest Farm a book that shares her experience operating a 60-acre farm against the backdrop of America's racial troubles, the COVID pandemic, and her desire more fully to understand the grace and kingdom of God. I'm Matthew Wickman of BYU's Faith and Imagination Institute. Hi, Tiffany. Good to see you today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So I met you at the conference you organized uh, titled Literature and Life Writing uh, at Wheaton College last October. And it's great to have the chance to talk with you today about your beautiful book, In Thought, Word, and Seed. I, I'm going to begin by asking you, what prompted you to write the book? And I ask it, but this is a backdrop. Personal books like this one are a little unusual for a lot of academics to write. You know, I speak from experience. I wrote a spiritual memoir that's quite open, shockingly so, as one review put it. Uh, but your book reads so beautifully. It's confident. It's elegant. Um, it even takes some interesting sort of experimental risks in places that I love. It seems like you were in some ways meant to write this book, that the book comes from a really authentic place. So I guess my question is, is that a sense that you share, you were meant to write this book and you wrote it, or did the book take you utterly by surprise? You know, I think rather the latter, I do think it did take me by surprise. I mean, on the one hand, I've always wanted to try lots of things. So as a liberal arts person, I love all learning. Uh, I was so attracted when I was growing up learning about Milton and him trying different forms. Uh, and so I thought, oh, that's a model I want to follow, you know. Um, but the book itself came as a result in part of an invitation um, and journal editor had um, read some of my work and just said, hey, would you write for us in this theology journal? But it's it's pastoral theology, so you can do it however you want to. I had a colleague who was writing lyric essays, Miho Nonaka, and her work Production of Silk was really meaningful and beautiful. And so I thought, well, let me, I'll just try it. I'll just try it. Wrote one and then another and then another and there it was. So. Well, it's, I love it. And, and it dawns on me that pastoral theology has more than one meaning in a book like this one. You know? Yes, you and me both. Yes, yes. Right. Oh, wait, can you talk about the experience of writing it? I mean, you mentioned in places in the book frustrations you know, that you felt that you couldn't get to the writing of the book because you were tied up with work on the farm, right? Or else, you know, and this is gets really quite poignant in places, you were distracted, perhaps depressed by news surrounding COVID you know, in, in the depths of the pandemic. 
And I know that when I wrote my own uh, spiritual memoir, it began, it was very, it was a halting process for me. I couldn't get the voice right at first. I was such an academic, such a kind of a hardened academic at that point. I had to sort of really break out of that to be able to get at the voice that book needed. Um, but eventually, you know, it began to flow from me and the writing became quite cathartic. Did you experience anything like that when you wrote this book? Did the experience of writing it evolve for you as you worked on it? Well, I definitely think that confidence built over the course of the process, right? So the first lyric essay I ever wrote was the first chapter I wrote, Owl on Beauty, which became the chapter Clearing. Um, and when I shared it with some colleagues, they were like, you should do more of this. So I thought, well, okay, I'll give it a go. You know, I wrote another one and that was harder, uh, right? And again, in some ways it got harder and harder uh, as time goes on, but also I knew that I liked it more and more. So I sort of persevered through the more challenging chapters to write. So the stakes of the owl chapter were medium high. The stakes of waddle were higher. The stakes of grass, very high indeed. So, you know, the proceeding through that level of challenge. Um, but I did find uh, at several points that, you know, in the middle of the distraction of the pandemic, when it was incredibly difficult to make any progress at all, that certainly those relationships, readers who are friends, but also the in invitations of that editor, um, even an invitation from another farm to come give a talk uh, became a chapter. And those became the ways that my friends called out the work that was there. And that felt to me as just as theological as you can imagine in terms of the way the body of Christ works, the way the the production of meaning happens in community, right? Um, so I am grateful for what seems like, in retrospect, a kind of miracle because I don't know how we, any of us got anything done yeah. uh, during the pandemic. My husband had long COVID. You know, we we're learning a new way of teaching and being. Um, and then, of course, there's just the regular old farm work, parenting work, all that that sort of come in as well. Uh, that was not an easy time for anybody. Um, there have been, I think, some positive effects coming out of it in terms of people learning how to live a bit differently and simplify in some ways. There, were, but but the experience with COVID was not easy on anybody, and such a burden, especially in education. I mean, so many kids suffered, and it wasn't easy for anyway. There's a story um, when I was a graduate student at UCLA. One day, I went to see a professor, and he pulled a book off his shelf. We were talking about a paper and about writing. He wanted to make a point about elegance of writing. He pulled a book off his shelf opened it up and he said, what do you see there in the table of contents? And I'm kind of looking at it and I kind of looked back at me as he goes, notice all the chapter titles are a single word. So, okay. So I went to your table of contents, okay? And I saw, I saw chapters that were titled field, chapter two, grass, then chapter three, forest, clearing, Waddle, single word chapters. It, it, it brought that story to mind about a kind of elegance <laughs> of writing. And I'm wondering, um, what came first for you? Like the the chapter titles and the form in which you wanted to write this, kind of the, the, the voice, or was it more the substance of things you wanted to say that had to find the right form? That's a great question. The uh, I would definitely say that the chapter titles themselves came at the end of the process for the most part. Um, it was a kind of honing in that way, stripping down to, okay, what are the barest, most essential pieces? 
But the way the process for the chapters themselves in terms of content came out of um, largely questions. So um, I, my husband and I started the farm seven years ago and everything has been new to us. And so in this space of newness, oh, the first lamb births, oh, the first processing of pigs whom you've come to love, um, you know, all, all these big new experiences prompt all kinds of questions, big meaning life questions, because I always ask that kind of thing. Um, and so when starting to ask and answer those questions, of course, as a literary scholar, as a Christian, I'm going to go to a few places for that, right? I'm going to go to the word, the Bible and theology, and I'm going to go to uh, books, to literature as ways of figuring out some of those answers to questions. And so in terms then the, the braided form of the, you know, sort of experimental lyric essay memoirish thing that emerged came out of the question that meets the place that meets the resources that I have to hand to answer it, namely theology and literature. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it's just a nice job of sort of braiding these things together and weaving in and out of these different kinds of of discussions. It can be a discussion about the farm and suddenly a discussion about theology and a discussion then about, about kind of social issues. It's, it's really, I think, very expertly done. Near the end of the first chapter field, um, you're discussing, you kind of have a brief discussion there of Virgil's Georgics at the end of that chapter. And yeah, there's a line there that reads this. You say, maybe farming handbooks have always been about more than farming. Uh, farming is as good a, as any a way to talk about being in the world. That sounds right to me but i've worked on a ranch just enough to know that it's really <laughs> hard work and it can knock out like the the best grand visions and i'm wondering about your experience now seven years on that farm have you found it true that living on a farm is a way to think about things in the world or is the labor of farming so intensive that almost consumes the metaphor, you know, farming as a way of thinking of the world in the weight of the, of the very practical, very day-to-day -day responsibilities of farm work. You know, there may have, I think there probably have been many farmers who've experienced the kind of exhaustion that you're talking about or the frustration with it, right? I'm thinking about like Nathaniel Hawthorne, for example, right? <laughs> Oh, or something like that, right? Where it's just like, no, well, not so much. Thank you. I'd rather just like have this sitting at my desk or bookishness. It may be just a feature of the current moment when, um, you know, the pull of the screen, the endless distractions, distracted from distraction by distraction, um, all of those kind of pile up so much that working and thinking is just two things. And maybe that's, you know, it's somehow actually a clearer place to work from, right? The physical body um, and the mind must go together, right? They, we must be embodied persons. And so I have found it an essential. Um, I remember the day when, um, you know, COVID had just been declared. We were having a a kind of virtual meeting and I, I went outside to work on the waddle fence um while the meeting was going on and it, it just became everything became peaceful and clear and i was able to focus and it was just sort of so good in the middle of all that mess and so in some ways then the the physical labor clarifies or helps me toward thinking. Now that said though, I about the line that you read, you know, maybe it's as good a way as any. 
uh, to talk about being in the world, I really do think that, you know, maybe it's very Jonathan Edwards of me or something, but like, just pay attention to whatever the thing is you're doing, like the Lord will be there, right? Like, so I don't think there's any kind of privileged space or anything. Like, okay, you're a roller skater, go with that, let's do it, you know? Um, and so uh, I, I don't think there's anything particular. Okay. I do. I mean, I, I think I do appreciate that second sentiment about about God being in any circumstance potentially, right? It's about it's about discerning where God may be, right? And and not so much about uh, necessarily needing to be a farmer. Which is thank you for that because yeah. I, I I know enough about myself to know that I would not be good at the latter. <laughs> I would not be good. But but yet that that what it does impress on you, kind of that the heaviness of the labor, right? And 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 finding sort of the mind and the thought and the discernment in the midst of that labor is a very important lesson that can I mean, can be taught in some ways and in powerful ways in the kind of work you've been doing as it comes out in the book. Let me go back to something. A minute ago, you talked about the, the, the experience of the owl, the essay on the owl that became this chapter clearing. Right? Let me ask you about this chapter here. This is, among other things, a chapter in which you reflect on beauty, right? And you talk about poets like Wallace Stevens and Edward Thomas. You talk about minor prophets. Uh, Micah's mm -hmm. there. Habakkuk is there. Um, and these prophets reflecting on why we seek beauty and the poets reflecting on why we seek beauty and, and how beauty, when it comes to us, it often seems marred or, or, or not uh, fully entirely realized for us. You know, the chapter focalizes all these thoughts on your experience of sitting with that injured owl. Uh, it's such a moving story. I wonder if you could tell us about the experience and why for you that experience brought beauty so vividly to mind. Sure, sure. Uh, my first thought was, well, have you seen these owls? They're so beautiful, right? Or something like that. <laughs> I think the the key is the being able to to see the thing that you're looking at, whatever it is. Um, and that's going back a little bit, maybe to my last comment. But the gist of the story is that I was in a terrible place. I was in a bad mood. I wasn't able to like. I think I was in a kind of blocked moment in writing or something like that. Um, it was around my birthday, and I was feeling sad about just all <laughs> life. <laughs> right? Imagine if, like, sad sack a person as you can, and that was me at the time. And so the thought that some some creature so majestic, but that also matched me in some small way, being injured, that I would get to have that moment of communion with something like myself at that moment um, that was so different than me, too. I could look at it then and not be looking at myself, but also relate to it. It felt like such a gift. It felt like such a mercy. I was so needy in the sort of most annoying way. Uh, and there was this amazing, you know, imbrication of feather layers and the precise color of the eye and the way of the heads turn just utterly majestic even in that frailty and golly it felt like well it felt, it felt absolutely like mercy maybe even like grace it's great and you do capture the owl i mean so beautifully in places here in this chapter um I mean, I'm looking at this on, uh, this is from page 153, just this little paragraph. I mean, and, and you're such a, you're such a good writer, Tiffany. I, I just admire this so much. <laughs> but, but, you know, his aspect was all intention. No, not intention, attention. 
only the violet underlid occasionally slow closed in what Josh, your husband, called a mascara, a mascara blink. The violet did have an eyeshadow look to it against the gold and gray and brown. I could see the lighted under feathers, a harlequin or harlot tipping buff gold petticoats. He was jacketed in cascades of variegated feathers trimmed in undulating sandbars of white buff tan sienna. I could see all the layers of softness required to remain silent in flight and at night. One wing in disarray. What a great description of this owl. It's beautiful. I, uh, it went through a lot of drafts. <laughs> It would have to. If you just produced that, like in your lunch break, I would be so <laughs> depressed. Like there's no hope for the rest of us, right? Um, is there? Well, the drafting process was about like, wait, no, look, wait, no, look, wait, no. What was it? <laughs> more precise, more precise. Yeah. Because I think sometimes that that essay about beauty and brokenness is about like, how do you get to even look at it? How, if you look closely enough. The word, like, and if you've had enough experience with words, the language will come. If you've had enough experience with drawing, the the, the lines will come, right? But you have to be doing the looking. Um, and for, you know, in our distracted age, that's a very hard thing. And it feels like such a, whew, when it when it does happen. Yeah, well, you've really captured it there. It's beautiful. I'm wondering, is there a passage uh, in the book, or maybe a chapter that's your favorite? If so, I'm curious, and, and then maybe you'd say, no, I love them all, right? Which justifiably so <laughs> but is there is there is there a chapter that especially spoke to you or a passage you think this kind of captures what i'm trying to do in the book um is there one of those i mean if there is would you read a little from that for us if not um i i guess can you talk to that point too well you know in some ways the book is a conglomeration of passages that have been meaningful, that I've loved from lots and lots of different works. So in some ways, when I was, when I'm just thinking about what you're asking, I'm thinking, well, that bit from Pierce Plowman or that line from Fanny Howe or yeah. that one crazy line that I've worried over so much from James Baldwin and, oh, is it going to offend people and how's it going to go, right? Like there are all these texts that I have tried to attend to as hard as I can. And so they're my favorites, right? Uh, in a way, which is funny to think about just reading, you know, Pierce Palman to, uh, to tell you my favorite passage in my book. But <laughs> in some ways that that would be the truest answer um, to discover again how to talk about mercy with Langland, to talk about how one comes to the Lord with James Baldwin, or to talk even about how to let go of your own work with Fanny Howe. Um, these have all been really meaningful experiences in reading um, and appropriate, I think, to a literature teacher who yeah. is trying to inform. Yeah, it's consistent what you said a minute ago about about the owl, about paying attention. Like, you know, come back and look, look again, look again, look again. In this case here, you're talking about kind of looking again at these literary texts, these really these important touchstone texts through which so much can be seen, in which and through which so mm -hmm. much can be discovered and seen and, and understood. Um, that makes sense. Let me, let me ask you about this. Um, 
it's now about the inscription uh, that you wrote in my copy of the book, right? So when I saw you at the conference a few months ago, the book was hot off the press, right? And I, I brought a copy to the conference and I asked you to sign it for me. Uh, sorry, total fanboy stuff. <laughs> right. I was so honored. Yeah. Um, and you inscribed with that line from Pierce Plowman. Uh, you wrote, his mercy is over all his works. Thank God, Tiffany, right? Um, is that line, I'm curious, is it, a, is it a personal credo of yours? Uh, do you think it captures the vision and spirit of the book in some way? I mean, I mean, the fact that it's in the inscription is interesting to me. Um, why that? Well, I think it's, um, it encapsulates the, the message or ethos of the book overall, I think, which is to say, you know, if you look to the little bits that open and close the work, it says, Lord have mercy, and then there's the book, and the end says, Christ have mercy. Um, and that idea that the book is a calling out for mercy, it's a try in the middle of a pandemic, it's a asking questions in a field with some books next to you, you know, it's a sort of reach out to the Lord, as it were, uh, in that way. And so for the works themselves to answer, don't worry, his mercy is over all his works. It's okay. It's okay. And so in some ways, when I sign that in um, copies of the book, I would less say it's me forever as it is like th this me at this moment or me in this book or this book itself. Um, and it's a good line, right? Like, <laughs> so, um, and it's not even mine, so I can say that, right? Um. <laughs> it's a great line. Yeah, I love it. And I, that's a, it's a, it's a really um, beautiful idea to which it speaks. You know, for me, but this is a book, okay, this is a beautiful book. It's beautifully written, but it's not just about beauty, right? So the chapter two for me, um, Grass, is what I would say is the most wrenching chapter in the book and it's some very different feelings in there from just beauty and, and mercy or in play and this chapter consists of a series of letters that you write to james baldwin um who in the aftermath of george floyd's death in 2020 and the letters are quite candid about your sorrow at american racism and about you know kind of the sense of white guilt and about what you call the inevitably tedious nature of that guilt and it's about your efforts um, to stand up for equality where you can in your community. And it's about the structural racism that afflicts your communities. It does most communities across our country, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's finally about your hope for something like absolution or redemption through Christ. There's a lot in play in that chapter, Tiffany. And I'm struck by um, the second full paragraph on page 92, I want the kingdom. Would you read that paragraph for us? We get this in your voice. Sure, absolutely. Um, just to give a little background, this is near the end of that chapter. Um, so it's where we're finally getting down to brass tacks about this, right? So I've been writing imaginary or what I'm calling dream letters to James Baldwin for a while when this comes out. I want the kingdom, James Baldwin, not the keys to it only. I want it on earth as it is in heaven. I want Jesus to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. I want us to be satisfied in the parched places, to be like watered gardens, to dance. And I want us here to be called the repairer of the breach. I am calling from the hidden five in the dark. 
I, I found this such a such a, a stirring passage in the book, such a great um, paragraph. And that little section, by the way, in the book ends with just from across the field, our dog Louise barks back, which is a great <laughs> little line about right there, like in that <laughs> moment, you know, of stirring, soaring vision. Reminded that the, the dog is there, the animals are there, the children are there, the fields are there. It's, um, my question is this: Do you believe in this kingdom for which you call? Right, I want the kingdom, James Baldwin. Right. If so, is the only form of that kingdom an apocalyptic one, an ultimate one, or can it also take provisional, more immediate forms? And, and if so, do you see any of these forms around you? And do you think that the forms that if you do see any, are they the kinds of forms that would please James Baldwin? All right, a lot there, a lot there. I know, I mean, I'm sorry. You no, know, all good. The first <laughs> thing to say is that I will never presume to say what would please James Baldwin because I'm sure he would say no. To, <laughs> to, you know, he has his own ways and he will say what he has to say. But um, in terms of the kingdom itself, yeah, I'm in. I'm a believer in the kingdom. I want... I'm, God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, yes, and now, and then. Um, I would say I do not believe it's only apocalyptic, but it absolutely will be apocalyptic. So uh, in the sense that we get to start now in the already before the not yet, um, let's do it and how. Um, do I see evidence of it? I think my, my most a powerful sense of when I see the alreadiness of the kingdom uh, is in what situations that James Baldwin might call the welcome table mm -hmm. comes together. When people are coming together, sharing stories um, across boundaries of difference, etc. Um, and maybe that's provisional uh, in a way, um, but we're seeing it, for example, uh, one of my jobs at Wheaton is to run a program in public humanities and arts called the Equitas Fellows Program. And we are working with community partners at Outreach Community Ministries to do a thing called the Community Stories Project, where we, um, our students uh, at Wheaton make art together with older adults, with an after-school program, and it's uh, students and with various groups in their community and ministries who are our neighbors too. So we're like deliberately trying to shrink the distance between uh, neighbors very concretely by making things and reading things together. And then at the end of our term, for example, just last December, we got together and had a big show, right? Where we <laughs> like people got up to share what they'd made, our students and their poems, older adults and the things that they'd painted and these little middle schoolers, you know, some from, you know, for whom English is their second or third language, reading out things that they had written. And it felt like in that moment, golly, that's a little bit of the kingdom right there, right? Um, those, the organization itself, Outreach Community Ministries, is working very much to address structural inequalities in really, um, you know, powerful ways that have to do with both policy, uh, services, and so on. So it's doing that big structural work, but it also had an outworking in a pretty like person to person at the same room, having good snacks together, <laughs> uh, you know, and, yeah. and that felt, I think, encouraging real, um, to me, uh, Again, I will never presume to say <laughs> whether James Baldwin would approve of such a thing, but I'll use his term for it. 
welcome table and say amen uh, to that vision. Yeah, amen on my part. That sound, that's, what a great project. And, and I really appreciate that vision, that, kind of that sense of community coming together in that way, doing meaningful things that can be as massive as looking to sort of rectify structural inequalities, but also as small as sharing snacks and sharing stories, right? Which is so important, that's great. You know, near the, um, after your paragraph about, about wanting the kingdom, the chapter briefly discusses an episode from Toni Morrison's novel, Song, Song of Solomon, right? And the chapter kind of trails off into a vision of your own regarding Christ's coming. It's, it's, a, it's kind of Morrison and your voice kind of blend in a way that I found really compelling. You, you get to this point, you, you, you write this, you say, um, then comes Christ from among the foreign pines striding into this field, and he's crowned in oak and linden, his arms pitched wide, bared at the angles of the road, and when he steps into the field, the box on Pilate Dead's ear, this is a character in the Morrison novel, Pilate Dead's ear opens in its books, and the words emerge and fly to him. And from C.C. Miller's throat, a former owner of your, of your property, C.C. Miller's throat, from his open mouth, comes come swarms of bees straight to Christ's dripping fingers, to the flowers of his crown. And Jesus says, this grass shall live. This is the end of the chapter called Grass. Um, my question here, it's a beautiful passage. I've got a question for you about literature, about novels like Morrison's or Baldwin's or other texts you discuss in your book. I'm wondering about the role that literature plays in this larger vision of kingdom. I, I doubt that you'd say that literature could actually coax uh, Christ out of heaven, <laughs> right? But, um, but does literature turn us to such thoughts of redemption? And if it does, here's a question that you, I would hear like in a literature program. Are we sure that's always a good thing? Or as some critics contend, is that potentially false consolation that distracts us from the difficult social and political work that needs to be done? Does literature simply allow us to retreat into fantasy? Important, important question. Um, I think maybe the key to to my particular answer to that one is within the choice of pilot dead as the carrier or the opener of the books the sort of apocalyptic books that are in this little vision when she uses the term mercy in the scene that i'm referring to in song of solomon um her grandbaby has just died and they are at the funeral of uh of her flesh and blood Hagar, and she starts calling out and singing back and forth with her daughter, mercy, mercy, mercy in the morning, mercy, mercy, mercy. And she's sort of asking at that moment, like, where is mercy when my baby has just died? Where, where, where? Um, and so in that sense, the word mercy, when Pilate, you know, calls out is a kind of calling out to the Almighty in some ways, but it's also a calling out to, you know, to who has ears to hear. Yeah. So in that way, I think literature is call and response, right? So uh, calling to Christ from heaven, sure. Calling to the people who are reading, where is mercy, right? And of course, mercy is a big theme in that book too. No mercy street, uh, or no mercy hospital, I mean, the, the hospital in which, um, milkman dad is born and so on and so forth. So um, when Morrison writes um, her character, Pilot, she's forming a character who is herself mercy, um, asking for mercy in the world. 
and providing it at the same time. So it's not just a fantasy, though she's a fictional character, because she is modeling for us both the refusal to stop asking, um, right? She is um, the, the widow, the persistent widow, right? Um, and uh, also an embodiment uh, person who's putting her money where her mouth is uh, again and again in sometimes funny and uh, uh, wonderful ways uh, in that book. And so when I think about what literature does in the world, I am not ashamed for it to be a call to the Almighty at all. Um, and to say, come Lord Jesus, for sure. But in the same way that the sort of community of the love of the Trinity works as call and response. So um, in the body, et cetera, right? Whoever wants to read this and, you know, sort of say, oh, there's your apocalyptic vision. Well, yeah, make the grass live, right? Make the, make these babies live, make these, you know, don't let it happen this way anymore, right? Uh, so if I, if I can call for that or if I can try somehow uh, in the domains where I'm working, uh, et cetera, to be part of that uh, kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, uh, yeah, I'm in. Thank you for that. Uh, I and 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 I that really resonates with me. Uh, that I concur wholly. You know, we had a great conversation with a poet a few weeks back uh, named um, Abigail Carroll, and she I asked her whether poetry can generate new feelings or 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 not, and she said that for her, poetry evokes things, evokes mm -hmm. things that we remember, evokes things that are latent in us, and it brings them forth in a way, and I think that in a lot of ways, the power of literature is to take things that are um, latent in us as, as hopeful, things we believe are true, and it, it, it puts flesh on these things, puts depth of feeling to them, creates context for them to make them all more realizable in some way. It calls them forth, right? This mm -hmm. grass shall live, and, 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 but we will live along with, and sometimes the grass will live because we live first and help that grass to grow, right? We, we assist in these works in the kingdom. And, and so for me, there's something very important about literature's power, sort of call forth, makes it an essential tool, right, in realizing any larger ideal that we have. Realizing an ideal with only politics and no art is, is almost an inconceivable to me. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I, I like calling forth. I think this moment in the book is calling forth. But I also think the metaphor of cultivation is worth yeah. thinking about um, in the sense that it's a growing thing. And to for literature to be a planting, for it to be a reaping, um, for it to participate in fruitfulness and experience the wonder of fruitfulness, right? Like meanings there that you never meant, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, that metaphor has been useful to me, too. So I'm going to ask you. We're time here for one more question. I mean, and and um, this is one um, that's kind of about education. It's kind of pivoting here off of off of uh, your beautiful book onto an education question, right? So you're uh, coming. I'm I'm talking to you from a room here at Brigham University, uh, a large religious university. I'm talking to you, and you're in your office at Wheaton College, which is one of the premier Christian colleges in America. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about the state of the humanities, uh, you know, and, and how you would assess the health of the humanities um, at your institution, Wheaton College, and how bullish you feel about the future of the humanities uh, in higher education. I guess my questions here are these. As you consider that, whether at Wheaton locally or more broadly, what most concerns you about what you see and what, if anything, gives you hope? 
So I think there is a lot of reason for hope. I, um, in the work that I do at Wheaton, in the work that I do more broadly uh, in the humanities, the projects are magnificent, exciting, new every morning. There are things to be made with amazing thinkers in community in the love of the Trinity. In my, uh, in my cohort with the Equitas Fellows Program, in my work with my colleagues in the English department, we have so many good ideas and our students are making so many amazing things. If I had to sort of be concerned about a thing, it would be something like the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. <laughs> good. Send more. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. I mean, our institution has been beset by cuts. Many have. Uh, the work, however, main maintains its excellence, both for sort of theological fruit, for you know the sort of ev evocation of purpose and meaning in people's lives, but also for the equipping in very real, powerful skills in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So the work is good. The water is fine. Come on in is kind of how uh, I'm feeling. And frankly, we're seeing lots of students interested. You know, our applications are doing well and it, it's a, it's a good time in in many ways but with higher education having you know fewer students overall to to be shared among the institutions that exist right we have a lower birth rate etc um then th those challenges do come and so we, we find ourselves in need of more labors for the harvest uh so that's that's the thing that concerns me Okay. Well, you yourself are a very uh, hardy laborer in this harvest. I, 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 I've been the beneficiary of your good work in it at the conference that I attended that you, uh, you hosted and, and organized. And, and you do so much good, uh, Tiffany, uh, in the larger world, both for uh, Christian institutions generally, higher education in your fields, an English professor, and also as a writer. Uh, this, this book in Thought, Word, and Seed is just uh, beautiful. Thank you for your time talking with me. Thank you for your excellent work. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Starley Pratt. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips on Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.